Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, October 13th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's top headlines. The GOP nominates Steve Scalise for House Speakership. Media host Jank Uger announces his bid for the Democratic presidential nomination. Israel says its Gaza blockade will stand until all hostages are freed. Saudi's crown prince and Iran's president hold their first talk since resuming ties. The White House says it's nearing its end on Ukraine aid. Poland and the Czech Republic extend border controls with Slovakia. Goldman Sachs sues Malaysia over a dispute about their 1MDB scandal settlement. And the Supreme Court hears a South Carolina racial gerrymandering case. In our first story, the GOP nominates Steve Scalise for House Speaker. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, NPR Online News, Time Magazine, Voices of America, CBS, Roll Call, and Forbes. Following a party ballot, House Republicans have nominated current majority leader in Louisiana, Representative Steve Scalise, to be the chamber's next speaker following Kevin McCarthy's removal last week. Scalise, 58, secured the nomination after beating House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan by 113 to 99 votes. Scalise was first elected into the House in 2008 and later became chairman of the Republican Study Group in 2012, as well as House Majority Whip in 2017. Prior to 2008, Scalise served in the Louisiana House of Representatives between 1996 and 2007. He will require at least 217 votes within the entirety of the House of Representatives in order to be elected as Speaker. Republicans currently hold a 221 to 212 majority in the chamber. Kevin McCarthy required 15 rounds of voting in January this year in order to assume the role after Democrats consistently voted on party lines for House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Speaking to reporters following the vote, Scalise stated that there was a lot of work to do, while affirming that it was a priority to send a message to people all throughout the world that the House is open and doing the people's business. Up to 20 Republicans reportedly still oppose Scalise and are reluctant to back him as Speaker. The House cannot bring forward legislation to pass or reject on the chamber's floor without an elected speaker, while a November 17 deadline remains for Congress to pass a new budget in order to avoid a federal government shutdown. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Our first spin is the Republican narrative from National Review. 217 votes must be either found in favor of Scalise or Patrick McHenry, Republican of North Carolina, must be given the appropriate powers to run the House in the short term. The situations concerning Israel, Ukraine, and a federal shutdown must be addressed. There seems to be a path forward now for the next chapter of GOP-led House leadership. The Daily Beast gives us a Democratic narrative. Despite Scalise's nomination, Republicans in the chamber are in fact bitterly divided and the Louisiana lawmaker's power seems to have already been undermined by a lack of party consensus. With the pro-Jordan faction potentially refusing to accept defeat, Americans may be in for a repeat of the chaos in January. The GOP needs to figure this out with so many simmering crises. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. 
This one says there's an 80% chance that Steve Scalise will be elected Speaker of the House of Representatives following Kevin McCarthy's removal. Apparently, Steve Scalise is a, a blood cancer survivor. Uh, he's oh, had a lot wow. of health problems recently. So, um, I mean, assuming he's well enough to, to serve, because I, I don't really know much about this Steve Scalise, but that's a, a character thing that's a check in his direction as far as I'm concerned, as far as a lot of people are concerned, probably. Right. Having that sure, you've, you've personal fortitude. Something. Yeah. Right. Now, that takes a lot. Yeah, when you look... Look at death, you know, you gain new perspective on life. I'm I care sure. about that much more than any, like, particular political issue in terms of how I feel about this person. Yeah, I think America's looking for character all around, you know, any kind of government position, or their city council or, or, you know, all the way up to the top, I think. We're looking for some character and for some, some real people who aren't afraid to, to speak truth to power. Yeah. Whatever that means to you, you know. I remember in my civics classes, which I don't even know if they have anymore, uh, you know, there's two philosophies of why you would want someone elected. Do you want them, do they agree with your viewpoints so you want to vote for them so that your viewpoints come across? Or do you want this person to be the one using their judgment to solve situations? I fall more in the second category. Uh, mm. Like that, I don't need the person to agree with me completely, but I want to trust the person in the crisis, in the arena, whenever the whatever happens, that they'll be able to handle it. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, a great civics teacher you had. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I would agree that people are uh, maybe pushing too hard to get their own agendas seen right. um, without just saying, hey, this is a person that I trust to make a decision for me. Right. Even though they may disagree on some level or on, right. on smaller parts. Uh, I trust their decision and that they it's their job to see the big picture and that they're doing their job. Yeah, I, mean, that's, I don't I don't need the person to be on my team. I just need the best player. Jank Uger announces his presidential run to challenge Biden. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, The Hill, Spectrum News, The Messenger and Semaphore. On Wednesday, Cenk Uygur, the founder of the progressive news outlet The Young Turks, announced he will challenge President Joe Biden for the 2024 Democratic presidential nomination. Uygur, who has often urged Biden to get out of the race, is a naturalized U.S. citizen who was born in Istanbul. He plans to challenge the Constitution's natural-born citizen clause in court. On his campaign website, Uger wrote that the upcoming election is the most important of our lifetimes. And on X, formerly Twitter, Uger accused Biden of not being able to make his own case for re-election despite success during his term. Recent polling showed Biden with a 53.9% disapproval rating and an approval rating of 39.5%. And dozens of polls show Biden's approval is sinking. Uger previously ran for office in 2020 when his bid for a congressional seat in Southern California ended with him finishing fourth with 5.9% of the vote. The only other challenge Biden faces for his party's nomination is from Marianne Williamson, given the switch of Robert Kennedy Jr.'s campaign from the Democratic Party to running as an independent. Thank you, Scott, for those facts, and we'll start this round of spins with a Democratic narrative from the Huffington Post. Putting aside the question of whether Uger is eligible to serve as president, Biden's unpopularity in some polling hasn't stopped the president from dominating the Democratic field. 
Even someone with the name recognition and financial backing of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. couldn't gain traction and opted for an independent bid. Uger's heart might be in the right place, but looking at the polling numbers, this primary is already over. And the Republican narrative comes from Daily Wire. Despite Biden's poor polling against Trump, Democrats have closed ranks around him, and now they're left with the media personality Uger, thinking he has a chance to challenge the incumbent president. Uger isn't eligible to serve in the Oval Office, and even if he was, he barely registered any support in a congressional race and has no chance on the national stage. All sides point to the eventual resounding defeat of Biden by the GOP. And here's the nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. There's a 90% chance that Biden will be the Democratic nominee in the 2024 U.S. presidential election. It's one thing for anyone to run for president beyond the fact that he's not really a politician, this Mr. Uger here, but he also needs to like change the law so that he's even eligible. So that's it. That's a, he's got a long road, a long road. He does. You never know, man. Things well, that's can change the thing. fast in politics. I mean, you, you go back and you look at all these, um, you know, people saying, laughing, laughing off. You know, there's one of, sorry to embarrass my good friend, but, you know, George Clooney saying uh, that, you know, <laughs> you know, there's not going to be a President Trump, okay? Like, let's just stop talking, let's stop wasting time dignifying it by talking about it. And that yeah. was the prevailing, I mean, if you, you know, that's what everyone thought. You know, yeah. and, and from some reports, even Trump didn't take himself as seriously as a candidate as he ended up being. Um, right. So, <laughs> then he you know, had to it, step into his big boy pants. Cause I'm afraid to, and they are big pants. I'm afraid to write, at this point, I'm afraid to write anyone off. Uh, yeah. You know, he has a huge challenge in front of him. Not being a natural born citizen, I don't think that's going to change. But if it does, Schwarzenegger, man. I well, that was Schwarzenegger. The, <laughs> I, I lived in California when he was the governor, and it was kind of awesome. There was explosion of some sort with the gas trucks that exploded, and it it destroyed a very crucial piece of a Oakland overpass. And mm. it and if you know anything about traffic in that area, it just basically paralyzed everything. It was a it was a true mm. disaster. And and they're like, oh, it's going to take like two years to fix this thing. And Arnold used his powers of governance and persuasion and and charisma and the thing was fixed in some kind of i don't want to overstate how quick it was but it was fixed in months not years and through various you know there was incentives put in place you know if you get it fixed early then you get extra money all these different things and it was fixed and it, he got a lot of credit for that and among other things so i mean as governors go i would say i i lived through the governor and it was you know pretty good pretty cool <laughs> yeah plus it's pretty boss to have you know, the biggest movie I star mean, in the world is your governor. Yeah, that is pretty cool. And it makes sense in California, too. Yeah. It does. Yeah. That, that I've decided Arnold's on my bucket list of people I want, I, I must meet I, before oh I die. Oh, my gosh. I was so, I, one of the things, remember I got fired from that job. Uh, oh, yeah. He yeah. was visiting San Jose and some people from my work went to go see him speak there while he was governor. And they, I, I don't remember if they didn't let me go or didn't tell me they were going. But then the people came back and were like, oh, yeah, we just saw Arnold. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> what are you doing? It, re no, it really bothered me. Like, it, like, legit, yeah. like, kind of like the, um, you know, the guy Scalise beating cancer meant more to me than when he, any, any, like, 
political thing. Like yeah. that told me more about that job than anything that was actually going on. It was like, okay, these people aren't on my team. Like this yeah. is Yeah. This um, is a this is a club you're not a part of. I guess. Like it, it just <laughs> it, it puzzled me. And it was like it wasn't like it was at he wasn't like it was like a speech he was giving in town. It was like anyone could go and they, they were able to like I don't know, it was just weird. It really yeah. did turn me off of of those people i'm sorry to say yeah <laughs> as if yeah. i wasn't turned off already and then they then i got <laughs> fired so it was it was work it was that's neutral. what really turned me off that's right when they fired me <laughs> yeah i knew our relationship was in trouble when i when i was fired <laughs> yeah I thought, oh, maybe we're not friends yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know if you have my best interests in mind and maybe i didn't have theirs in mind if i'd done a better job i wouldn't have been fired so there you go i'm sure they were jerks uh, both things can be true in Israel, the blockade will not be lifted until all hostages are freed. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, TRT World, The Times of Israel, Associated Press, and The Messenger. After Israel announced a complete siege on Gaza in response to the attack launched by Hamas over the weekend, Israel's energy ministers said on Thursday that the blockade would not be lifted until all Israeli hostages are freed. Some 150 people are believed to have been taken hostage by Hamas in Gaza. A number of officials, including Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and members of the International Committee of the Red Cross, are reportedly in negotiations with the group in an attempt to secure the hostages' release. Israel Katz, the Israeli energy minister, said on X, formerly known as Twitter, quote, humanitarian aid to Gaza? No electrical switch will be turned on, no water pump will be opened, and no fuel trunk will enter until the Israeli abductees are returned home. Humanitarianism for humanitarianism. And no one can preach morality to us. The comments come after Gaza's only power station ran out of fuel on Wednesday, leaving only generators with a limited power supply. Alongside an extensive bombing campaign of the territory, which left one of its largest hospitals out of service, the lack of electricity is expected to place an additional burden on hospitals that are consistently undersupplied, but are even more so recently. Katz's comment also came as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Tel Aviv, where he gave a joint press conference with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Blinken said the U.S. has Israel's back and will continue to support the country in their efforts to defend themselves. However, he cautioned, as the Prime Minister and I discussed, how Israel does this matters. We democracies distinguish ourselves from terrorists by striving for a different standard, even when it's difficult, and holding ourselves to account only falls short. Blinken said, That's why it's so important to take every possible precaution to avoid harming civilians. And that's why we mourn the loss of every innocent life. Thanks for that update, Melissa. We have a pro-Israel narrative from the Times of Israel. Following the scale of atrocities carried out by Hamas in Israel, Tel Aviv has every right to defend itself from terrorists, including taking proactive actions in Gaza to ensure these kinds of catastrophic attacks never happen again. Israel will not rest until the Hamas threat is eliminated. And here's a pro-Palestine narrative from the Associated Press. The actions carried out by Israel are not singling out Hamas alone, but are exacting a collective punishment on Palestinians as a whole. An already impoverished population of 2.3 million people is now facing a humanitarian catastrophe of an epic scale. 
And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they predict there's a 50% chance that Israel will lift the blockade on electricity, food, gasoline, and medicine by February 2024. There's an American comedian named uh, Mo Amer. He is very funny. He lives in Texas, um, and he's got a... There's a show, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, it's called Mo. That was, uh, it was in 2022, and uh, it's kind of uh, an exaggeration of his life. Um in Texas, in kind of like mm. flashbacks to Palestine when he was a boy. Um, just really, really interesting, super funny guy. Uh, he's one of those that you're just like, oh, yeah, you're funny. And just like looking at him like, yeah, this guy's yep. funny. I got to check him out. What's his name again? Mo Amr. The Saudi crown prince and Iran's president speak for the first time since ties were restored. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Times of Israel, Al Jazeera, Saudi Gazette, Politico and CNBC. Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman on Wednesday held their first direct talk since Tehran and Riyadh resumed diplomatic relations, discussing the ongoing conflict in Gaza between Israel and the Palestinian armed group Hamas. At the initiative of Iran's Raisi, they discussed the current military situation in Gaza and its surroundings. According to Saudi state media, the Crown Prince reaffirmed that Riyadh has actively engaged with all international and regional parties to halt the escalation. Bin Salman and Raisi, who restored diplomatic ties under a Chinese brokered deal in March after seven years of hostility, reportedly also expressed concerns about Israeli operations in Gaza. Bin Salman on Wednesday also received a phone call from Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan in which the Saudi leader reportedly voiced opposition to targeting civilians in any way. The Crown Prince further expressed support for the Palestinian cause and people in the quest for their legitimate rights. The Israel-Hamas war comes as a setback for a possible U.S.-brokered normalization agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which was supposed to culminate in an exchange of ambassadors before the next U.S. presidential elections. Meanwhile, U.S. President Joe Biden at a White House roundtable with Jewish leaders Wednesday warned Iran to be careful following the Hamas attacks on Israel. U.S. intelligence agencies reportedly suggest Tehran was surprised by the assault but the Biden administration has yet to make a definitive conclusion. Thank you, Scott. Those were the facts, and here are the spins, starting with an establishment critical narrative from al Mayadeen. The historic phone call between bin Salman and Raisi is a powerful sign of solidarity over concerns about the impacts on Palestine. While the West condemns the atrocities being carried out in Israel, it largely ignores the long history of Israeli treatment of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And MSNBC brings us a pro-establishment narrative. Regional rivals Saudi Arabia and Iran may invoke unity at this stage of the conflict, but in reality, they only use the Palestinians as a political tool to achieve their foreign policy goals. Tehran is not pro-Palestinian, but merely anti-American and anti-Semitic. The Saudis have also had numerous opportunities to advocate a solution to the Palestinian problems, but this does not serve their national interests. This is especially so since Riyadh sought to normalize relations with Israel, Iran's arch-rival. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says, There's a 40% chance that Saudi Arabia will establish diplomatic relations with Israel before January 20th, 2025. God, the web of alliances and, uh, and, you know, it just seems, you know, usually the enemy of the enemy is my friend. 
but in this case, it seems like the enemy of my enemy is also my enemy. Like it's just so, yeah, so such a web of alliances and rivalries. It's just it's yeah. a disaster. Like no it one is. can possibly. It feels like if you graphed it out with like a logic flowchart, someone would like end up declaring war on themselves because of all these different alliances at some point. I pose this question: Is there a generation coming up from the pipeline? That's going to say, enough is enough. Can we stop fighting? Like, this is just humans dying. This is just innocent people dying. Can Whatever right. these causes are, are they really that important? Can everyone just drop it? This is a completely new idea that I just came up you with. You just it's, came up with it. Yeah, so, it yeah, doesn't go back think... to, like, the the ancient Greeks or anything. <laughs> no, peace in the Middle East. You just figured it out. Yeah. Oh, uh, that should be my catchphrase. Yeah. Mm, th- yeah. Put that on your tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> The White House is near the end of the rope on Ukraine aid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the White House, The Guardian, and CNN. The White House on Wednesday approved another $200 million of military aid to Ukraine, but National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said that it's coming near to the end of the rope on how much more assistance the Biden administration can give. With the speaker position still unfilled by the Republican majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, Congress cannot introduce or pass new legislation that would allow the White House to send additional assistance to Ukraine outside of what's already been approved. The same is true for Israel, whom the U.S. pledged to arm following Hamas's attack this weekend. Asked by reporters at a White House briefing if the U.S. is on the cusp of running out of allocated funds, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said, in the near term, we've got appropriations and authorities for both Ukraine and for Israel. But you don't want to be trying to bake in long-term support when you're at the end of the rope. And in Ukraine, on the Ukraine funding, we're coming near to the end of the rope. Kirby added, the sooner that there's a Speaker of the House, obviously the more comfortable we'll all be in terms of being able to support Israel and Ukraine. Right now, because of existing appropriations and existing authorities, we've been okay, but that's not going to last forever. However, it's not only budget allocations that are giving U.S. leadership concerns. According to a CNN report citing a number of unnamed U.S. defense officials, there is also growing concern in the Pentagon about arming separate wars in Ukraine and Israel, while America's own weapons stockpiles are thinning. According to the report, a U.S. defense official said that the Pentagon has this week been contacting U.S. arms manufacturers in order to speed up fulfillment of orders. This is reportedly an effort that is still ongoing. All right. Predictably, we have left and right narratives on this story. Let's start with the left spin from The Guardian. Due to the instability in Congress created by Republicans, America's future assistance to Ukraine is now in jeopardy. This creates a risk that Ukraine will no longer be able to meaningfully defend itself from Russian aggression. Republicans need to end this political brinksmanship immediately. Here's the right narrative from The Hill. Irrespective of the next House Speaker, the front lines in Ukraine have barely shifted in months of fighting, despite over $113 billion of U.S. funding. Americans are right to ask what the strategy is and how the war will eventually be brought to a close. The U.S. cannot be expected to continually throw money at the war, particularly with problems at home and with the national debt spiraling to over $5 trillion. 
And we have a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community on this story as well. They predict there's a 1% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before the year 2024. I always wonder, where's this money coming from? Because what you don't hear is, okay, we're going to give $200 million to Ukraine. Now, that wasn't being planned for a couple years ago when this budget was coming into focus. Do you think they had a good savings of like, this is just my rainy day savings I for a guess, war? I guess, this is my Ukraine day savings. I rainy guess so. Because, <laughs> you know, because you never hear about, okay, we're going to send $200 billion here. Oh, we better cut back on this. Like, I never hear about that. It's always just on top of whatever. And maybe that's happening behind the scenes, but something tells me it's not. It's just more and more. (laughs) Where is it all coming from? $5 trillion of debt and $113 billion of funding to Ukraine. Yeah, if you don't, I, I, I messed up paying my taxes one time and they wanted the money. Like, they really, they were pretty firm. (laughs) (laughs) they were fine that i messed it up but they were like but you will be paying it like it's you know like all right you know accidents happen but we'll we'll come for you if you don't pay this just so you know like yeah we're you're paying you know right (laughs) yeah and and maybe that's how we have 200 million dollar 200 billion to send to foreign wars because they made sure that everyone they make sure that you know maybe that's it spend on things you really love yeah, just do it mindfully. You know, like they say, like, if you're on a diet, you can still have, like, a piece of cake, but, like, eat it mindfully. You know, like, don't right. just mindlessly eat whatever. Right. Um, but in this, so, like, you know, mindfully make sure that there's death and destruction reigning across the world. You know, right, really soak right. it in. Chew it slowly. Yes, enjoy it. <laughs> yes, savor, savor <laughs> the carnage. Yes. Uh, Mo, our friend Mo, super skinny. And, uh, still and skinny, also, still eats a piece of cake every night. Poland and the Czech Republic extend border controls with Slovakia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, KELO Sioux Falls, and Swiss Info. Poland and the Czech Republic announced they will extend temporary controls on their borders with Slovakia into November as European countries seek to curb illegal immigration. Polish Interior Minister Mariusz Kaminski reportedly confirmed that the government will extend the border controls until November 2nd, while the Czech government announced a similar extension Wednesday evening. Temporary controls on the Polish-Slovakian border began on October 4th, and Kaminski said that the results have been positive, with demonstrable effects. He doubled down on Poland's immigration policy, saying there will be no illegal migration routes through Poland. Austria, on October 4th, joined Poland and the Czech Republic, tightening its border with Slovakia, which is a transit point for many migrants from the Middle East and Afghanistan who are looking to reach Germany after crossing into the EU through Hungary and Serbia. Slovakia also announced Wednesday that it has extended controls on its border with Hungary as the number of migrants entering Slovakia has risen 11-fold to nearly 40,000 in 2023. Last month, Germany, which is a part of the EU's Schengen Open Border Zone with Poland, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Austria, introduced its own border checks as many governments face backlash over a rising tide of migration. Immigration has played a key role in several elections in the Central European region. All right, we'll begin this round of spins with a right narrative from The Telegraph. Eastern European countries such as Poland are providing a great example to Western countries grappling with the migration crisis stemming from Africa and the Middle East. 
Citizens across Europe and other Western countries are fed up with the endless stream of illegal migration and the moral lecturing from their leaders. Poland doesn't deal with terrorism and gang violence and has seen a booming economy over the last few decades. Poland is one of the few European countries that has the backbone to handle migration appropriately. And the left narrative spin comes from Fair Observer. Authoritarian demagogues in Poland and other European countries are running campaigns based on fear and discrimination in order to win elections. While some politicians try to disguise their bigotry by claiming anti-immigration policies are a matter of national security, far-right parties are running on a platform of xenophobia. Europe should focus on helping migrants instead of demonizing them. An Australian journalist is released from a Chinese prison. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, The China Daily, The China Project and The Guardian. Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced Wednesday that journalist Cheng Li had been reunited with her family in Melbourne after spending three years in a Chinese jail on espionage charges. Until her arrest on August 13, 2020, the now 48-year-old was working as a business reporter for China's state-owned English-language TV broadcaster, CGTN. Earlier, Beijing had stated that the Australian national had been deported after she served a two-year and 11-month sentence for illegally sharing state secrets overseas. In March 2022, Lei was prosecuted in a closed-door trial that Australian diplomats weren't allowed to attend. No evidence against her was ever published. According to Chinese authorities, Cheng Li confessed to the crime, pleaded guilty, and accepted the punishment. Despite Lei's return home, China is yet to release another Australian national, Dr. Yan Hengjun, a pro-democracy activist who was detained in Guangzhou in 2019 on national security charges. Thanks, Melissa. We have an anti-China narrative from the Daily Mail. The nightmare is finally over for Chang Lei, who spent over a thousand days imprisoned in one of China's infamous black jails, where she wasn't allowed to receive more than 10 hours of sunlight a year or speak with her daughters. Lei's conviction and mistreatment during custody further exemplifies the oppressive tactics routinely employed by the Chinese regime. Here's the pro-China narrative from Global Times. Cheng Li was deported from China after serving the full length of her sentence. Her conviction by the Chinese judicial system was a strong sign that anyone who violates Chinese laws can't expect to dodge punishment based on their nationality. Lei's detention and release have nothing to do with bilateral relations with Australia. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict there's a 50% chance that China will score at least 5.70 on the Human Freedom Index in the year 2030. If that's true about not receiving more than 10 hours of sunlight a year or speak with her daughters. It's, it's almost worse that she gets 10 hours of sunlight a year because that someone figured out like that's the bare minimum for someone not to like die or something. Right. right? Or, or like it would only if it was like she's put in a cage and never let out like, OK, well, I guess they just don't care, you know, like they yeah. someone's just but the 10 hours is almost more cruel somehow. Yeah. Because would you die of like a vitamin D deficiency? Yeah. But I do appreciate if you're going to. You know, the name is not deceptive. It's Black Jails. There's no light. Okay, good. <laughs> right. I, I We're going to be very that. direct. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, that's frightening. I mean, that. Like, I mean, I I can barely watch like Count of Monte Cristo or uh, <sighs> yeah, or like Man in the Iron Mask stuff like that. Like it's so those kind of like old dungeon things are so creepy. Right. And when uh, you, you know they're innocent, you're like, oh my god, yeah, it's so creepy, uh, and I just can't deal with it. I, you know, it's uh, and that that stuff is still going on to this day, which it definitely is, is very frightening. <sighs> Ugh, it's terrible. That's terrible. Convicted criminals could avoid jail as UK prisons fill up. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Times, The Guardian, The Telegraph, and Sky News. According to a Times UK report, Lord Edis, the presiding judge for England and Wales, said that starting next week, the sentencing of criminals who are on bail should be delayed, and some existing prisoners may be released early due to an expanding prison population. The order, which reportedly came from a meeting between Edis and other senior judges, said that cells in magistrates' courts are to be used to hold suspects of the most serious crimes. However, one senior judge said that convicted rapists of children under 13 could still remain on bail. This comes as the prison population in the UK reached 88,016 last week, up more than 6,500 in a year and closing in on the maximum capacity of roughly 88,670. In response, the government last year announced the emergency use of 400 police cells through Operation Safeguard and more recently said it would try to rent prison cells in foreign countries. The U.K. has also closed 13 prisons since May of 2010, which has brought capacity down by more than 5,000 open spots. Though the government is planning to build a 2,000-inmate super prison in Wrexham, critics have questioned whether the Ministry of Justice should slow the pace of prison closures. While the MOJ cites the COVID pandemic and last year's lawyer strike as reasons for a backlog in cases, the president of the Prison Governors Association has blamed right-wing ministers for pushing for longer prison sentences and increasing sentences for existing crimes. Despite the government projecting that the prison population is to grow to hundreds over its current capacity by next month, Justice Secretary Alex Chalk said there will always be enough prison places to ensure that the guilty are convicted, the innocent walk free, and the public are protected. We'll begin this round of spins with narrative A from The Telegraph. This dangerous situation has been years in the making, with the MOJ and other authorities having predicted the rise in the prison population as early as 2018. The government's claim of investing in so-called modern prison places are largely unfulfilled, with 75% of them existing only on blueprints. Operation Safeguard, too, is inadequate, which is why violent criminals will begin walking the streets again if real prison infrastructure isn't built immediately. And Narrative B comes from the UK's official government website. While it's true that less than half of the government's planned new prisons have been built, 5,500 have been, which is enough to hold the current number of convicts. Ministers are also working with European partners to rent prison space abroad, which will be a unique but effective tool. No one is sitting idly as England and Wales become overrun by prisoners. Measures have been taken and communities will be kept safe as usual. Goldman Sachs sues Malaysia over a 1MDB settlement. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, Financial Times, France 24, Associated Press, Al Jazeera and Reuters. Goldman Sachs on Wednesday filed a complaint in a British court for arbitration against Malaysia amid a disagreement over a 2020 settlement tied to the role of the Wall Street Bank 
in the multi-billion dollar 1MDB investment fund scandal, the biggest foreign bribery case in U.S. enforcement history. This comes as Goldman argued that the Southeast Asian country has violated its obligations to appropriately credit assets against the guarantee provided in the agreement and to recover other assets, with Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim urging the firm to honor its settlement earlier this year. Speaking at a business conference in Singapore last month, Ibrahim vowed to chase a new, tougher settlement from Goldman Sachs, calling the 2020 agreement unfair, but refraining from saying that the government would file a lawsuit against the bank. In addition to paying $2.5 billion to resolve criminal charges over the 1MDB scandal, which reportedly saw over $4.5 billion stolen from the wealth fund, Goldman committed to helping recover $1.4 billion in assets, including $500 million by August 2022. Failure to recover the agreed amount last year would lead to an interim payment of $250 million. Charges against three Goldman Sachs units were filed in December 2018 for misleading investors, as the investment bank underwrote the One Malaysia Development Berhad bonds in international markets, raising billions for the now-defunct state fund. Malaysian authorities denied Thursday the claims that it had breached the settlement deal, deeming Goldman's latest move premature and stating that it would prepare its response to protect the interest of the Malaysian people. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A comes from the South China Morning Post. Goldman Sachs has every right to demand arbitration in this case, as the government of Malaysia has, in bad faith, tried to take advantage of its asymmetrical power by demanding a new settlement with more onerous penalties, as well as by not being transparent with regard to the recovery of looted assets. Here's Narrative B from Malay Mail. It's clear that Goldman Sachs has sued Malaysia only to divert attention away from its obligation to hand over the agreed $250 million interim payment. As the company has failed to recover the stipulated amount of $500 million two years from the signing of the deal. After an entire year requiring deadline extensions, apparently in good faith, Goldman has shown its malicious intention. A majority of the Supreme Court is skeptical of a South Carolina gerrymandering claim. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Washington Examiner, CNN, and NBC News. The U.S. Supreme Court's conservative 6-3 majority on Wednesday seemed skeptical of the idea that the South Carolina legislature drew their congressional district maps based on race rather than party affiliation. The district in question, from which the GOP-led legislature removed thousands of black voters, includes the city and county of Charleston, which is represented by Republican U.S. Representative Nancy Mace. State lawmakers approved the map in 2022, prompting the NAACP to sue. A federal three-judge panel subsequently sided with the plaintiffs, ruling that the redrawing deliberately moved 30,000 black residents from Charleston County away from the district to reduce its black population to a target of 17%. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that there was no direct evidence that race had predominated in the decision-making process, no odd-shaped districts were drawn, and that there existed a wealth of political data to justify the map. Furthermore, Justice Samuel Alito claimed the lower court relied on erroneous expert testimony, with Justice Neil Gorsuch adding that there was nothing suspicious. 
The court's three liberal justices came to opposing views, with Justice Kentaji Brown-Jackson arguing that the plaintiffs aren't required to provide a smoking gun for whether race was a factor. And Justice Alina Kagan claiming race can be more predictive of future voting behaviors than election data. The outcome of the case, titled Alexander v. South Carolina NAACP, has seen both Republican and Democrat lawmakers file briefs with the court to support their respective sides. Those were the facts on our final story, and we'll wrap this round of spins with a Democratic narrative from the New York Times. Charleston had elected a Republican in every election since 1980, until a Democrat was able to capture a slim victory in 2018. How, then, could race not have played a role if Nancy Mace was subsequently able to win by 14 points after 62 percent of black voters from the district were removed? The South Carolina GOP knows that African Americans vote over overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party, which is why they chose to rid the district of their voting power. And the conversation brings us the Republican narrative. The race-based analysis for South Carolina's map is flawed. Redrawing maps based on party affiliation is allowable, so when lawmakers conduct redistricting, they're likely to end up moving large groups of one race or the other. The Democratic Party engages in more than its fair share of this practice as well. And here's the cynical narrative from the Center for American Progress. Both Democrats and Republicans gerrymander massively, making American democracy far from fair. Election laws should change. Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, October 13th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.